Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Streckert. Imagine for a moment that a gigantic international crowd has gathered for a papal appearance at St. Peter's Cathedral in Vatican City. This is a crowd that has people from all over the world speaking different languages or different national origins, and they would be in that setting united in worship and enthusiasm. And imagine them all participating in prayers together and overcome by a feeling that washes over a crowd when engaged in mass activity. I am not a religious person. I don't know what it feels like to pray with a large crowd of people. But I know what it's like to be caught up in the energy of a concert or a sporting event. And I'd imagine that group worship is maybe along similar lines. Anyway, imagine all of that. And then imagine that the whole thing is suddenly interrupted. That everybody's shared positive mass experience comes to an abrupt halt. Imagine for a moment an archbishop or a cardinal leading prayers who's suddenly interrupted by a crowd of men with guns who shove him aside, seize the PA system, and declare to the crowd who moments ago had been united in prayer that the second coming was at hand and that the end times had begun. And then imagining those men with guns locking down St. Peter's Cathedral and holding one of the most famous and culturally important temples of worship captive for two weeks. Something like that actually happened in 1979, when the Grand Mosque in Mecca was seized by terrorists and put under siege. Arguably, it was an event that shaped the Islamic world almost as much as, say, the Iranian Revolution but it doesn't get a lot of attention today. And today's episode is the story of one of the most dramatic and bloody episodes of the past half century, a story in which one of the most sacred and important sites of a major world religion was profaned. But first, some background. The principal character in our story today was from a low-density rural area of Saudi Arabia that had previously rebelled against the Saudi regime. Um, my overall impression of Juhayaman Alotebi is that for a long time, he felt like, you know, an outsider due to his region, due to his ruralness, due to his place in Saudi Arabia. And the kind of religious extremism that this guy adopted, it's the kind that shows up in a lot of disenfranchised, low-density rural areas prone to religious extremism. He believed that the ruling elites in distant cities were corrupt, they were decadent, and that Saudi Arabia needed to return to the original ways of Islam. And he's not just conservative. Normal conservatives are all over the place, and normal religious conservatives don't end up, you know, seizing mosques and taking hostages and the like. This guy became extreme. He ended up seeing violations of Islamic law everywhere. He thought that it was unacceptable that the Saudi monarch's face was on the currency, because that violated Islamic rules against graven images. Uh, he thought that soccer was immoral, because the shorts that the players were, those were immodest. And one of the most dramatic beliefs of Alotebi was that he believed that the Mahdi had come again. Okay, I don't want to call the Mahdi the Islamic Messiah. 
Uh, it's kind of like that, but I think that's something of an oversimplification. But the basic belief is that the Mahdi is a blessed figure, a chosen one, who will appear a short time before the time of judgment, the end of the world, etc. Uh, the Mahdi is not in the Quran. Rather, he shows up in some of the hadiths, uh, the writings that are purported to be the sayings of Muhammad assembled after his death. And the hadiths are all like, oh, this guy heard Muhammad say this at some point. This other person, they heard that Muhammad said that. Not all Muslims believe in the Mahdi, and there's some debate among religious scholars about where the belief in such a figure comes from. It's way above my pay grade to speculate about how authentic the texts mentioning the Mahdi are. Uh, but what's important is that, again, not all Muslims believe in this sort of Messiah-like chosen one figure, and those that do, they have very different beliefs on what sort of figure the Mahdi might be. Alotebi, though, he didn't believe in some kind of symbolic Mahdi or an age of the Mahdi or the Mahdi as a figure in a distant future or anything like that. He believed that his brother-in-law, Muhammad Abdullah Al-Qahtani, was the Mahdi. And even though Al-Qahtani is going to be the one playing the role of would-be messiah here, he's not really the leader of the movement that we're going to be talking about today. Abdullah Al-Qahtani, uh, he's the one who's claiming to be the Mahdi, but he's not really the brains of the operation. Alotebi is. So that might be confusing that the guy who is playing the role of chosen one or messiah is not the leader. Um, and he's not exactly a figurehead or a puppet or anything. But Alotebi is still the core of the group. He is still the one who has all the charisma, who is the leader. Uh, none of this would have happened without him. So, Muhammad Abdul Al-Qahtani, he's the Messiah, he's the Mahdi, but he's kind of the second in command. Juhayman Alotebi, not the Mahdi, but he is the guy who is the leader for all intents and purposes. The leader of a group of hundreds of extremists that would come to terrorize the Muslim world. In 1979, on the fifth day of the Hajj, the Grand Imam of the Grand Mosque began addressing worshippers. He was, though, interrupted. Several men carrying coffins moved toward him, and carrying coffins on the Hajj and into the Grand Mosque, that would not have seemed strange to the people there. Bringing the bodies of dead loved ones uh, into the mosque for a blessing was apparently a fairly common practice, so no one was going to look sideways at some guys carrying coffins. The men bearing the caskets approached the Grand Imam and revealed that they hadn't been carrying bodies at all. They were, as you've probably guessed, Alotebi and his followers, and the coffins, they were stuffed with guns and other armaments. They grabbed the imam's microphone and said to the crowd of over 50,000 assembled worshippers, who previously had been enjoying their hajj, they said, the Mahdi has appeared. The gunmen, who were numerous, there were over 300 of them, um, they immediately locked down the Grand Mosque, which is surrounded by a large colonnade and is sort of like a gigantic stadium. They also used the mosque's architecture to their advantage, stationing sharpshooters and the minarets so they could pick off any opposing forces that might advance on them and keep an eye on the throng of probably terrified civilians below. 
and the adherents of the putative Mahdi suddenly held Islam's holiest site, and they had thousands of hostages. Al-Otebi and his so-called Mahdi, again his brother-in-law, Al-Qahtani, they demanded an end to Western influences in Saudi Arabia, they wanted to ban the education of women, they wanted to ban television, they wanted to expel non-Muslims from the Arabian Peninsula, and end oil exports to any and all non-Muslim countries. They also railed against the Saudi monarchy, which they characterized as being illegitimate, westernized, and corrupt. And something which I find really curious about these guys, um, these guys are not ISIS. Uh, these guys are not Al-Qaeda. Uh, they do not want to restore a Muslim caliphate. What these guys really wanted was a state-free version of Islam where people would just live in accordance with laws set down by God, and there wouldn't be any things like kings or bureaucracy or any of that. So it appears to me that these guys' ideology uh, is not one of, hey, let's set up an Islamic state. They're more like anarchists. They're more like anarchists who believe that the chosen one has appeared, and the end of the world is coming soon, and the state, the Saudi monarchy, needs to get out of the way. That state, the Saudi monarchy, responded by attempting a media blackout. Having the holiest site in all of Islam seized by terrorists is embarrassing. But outside media outlets did eventually get an inkling into what was going on and started speculating about who was responsible for this. And a number one target of speculation at the time was that perhaps the seizure of the Grand Mosque was somehow Iran's doing. Uh, this wasn't that unreasonable an assumption to make in 1979. Uh, the very dramatic Iranian revolution had just happened. And if the Ayatollah and his followers could overthrow the Shah, why not something like this? Iran's leadership, their Shia, and they're at odds with Saudi Arabia's Sunni monarchy. And could this be Iran wanting to challenge Saudi Arabia for supremacy in the Muslim world. It wasn't, though. Al-Otebi and his followers, they were Sunni extremists. And the Ayatollah, he immediately said that he had nothing to do with the seizure of the Grand Mosque. Stop pointing the finger at him. He went on, though. The Ayatollah said, well, it's probably an attack on Islam from the Americans or the Jews. And lots of people took these completely baseless accusations from Iran seriously. And as a reaction to the chaos in Mecca, protests sprung up at various American embassies in different Muslim countries. An angry mob attacked the U.S. embassy in Tripoli, and in Pakistan, in Islamabad, another mob burned that embassy to the ground. And again, this is all fueled by speculation, by people jumping to the conclusions. These protesters, they were aiming their anger at the wrong target. It was, after all, Sunni, anarchist, end-of-the-world extremist who had seized the Grand Mosque. And the Saudi Arabian government, they had kind of a theological problem. Uh, violence of any sort was prohibited in the Grand Mosque. Weapons were not allowed, obviously Al-Otebi and his followers, they were violating that rule. And this is how sacred life is supposed to be in that building. Not even plants were supposed to be uprooted in the mosque. So, the Saudi government, they couldn't just send in troops guns a-blazing, 
they had to get approval from religious authorities to storm the mosque. Otherwise, a whole lot of people in the Muslim world are going to be upset with them, siege or no. Uh, so a group of ulema, religious scholars who interpret Islamic law, they did the prudent thing, and after examining the situation, they said to the Saudi government, and again, the Muslim public who's going to be, you know, paying attention to this kind of thing, yes, these were pretty extreme circumstances. Uh, yes, you do have the go-ahead to bring in weapons and use force inside the Grand Mosque. So the Saudis, they got their uh, boxes checked and T's crossed when it came to the religious matters. And here's a weird little coincidence to the story. One of the scholars in this interpretive body, the ulema, uh, his name was Abdul Aziz bin Bas, and he happened to be Juhayman al-Otebi's old teacher. So imagine that. Imagine you're on a deliberative body, you're going to give the Saudi government the go-ahead to use deadly force inside of a holy site, and the guy behind the extremist group that you're saying to the government, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, uh, you can shoot him, he's your old student. That must have been a very, very strange position to be in. With the go-ahead from religious leaders taken care of, the Saudi government, they sent their National Guard in to launch a frontal assault on the Grand Mosque. It was a disaster. The extremists, again, they had positioned snipers in the minarets, and they were able to take out the National Guardsmen at a distance, and suddenly blood, it had been spilled both within and without the mosque. Mecca was evacuated, and the holy city of Islam began what would become a two-week siege. And when I was researching this... It kind of reminded me of the incident in Waco, Texas, when a group of Christian kind of apocalyptic extremists, they had their compound surrounded by agents from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms for some time. Except here, the stakes are much, much higher. And Al-Otebi, he was very much like a Muslim David Koresh. He actually did believe that his brother-in-law was the Mahdi, and he was waiting for some sign or assistance from God. Uh, in his mind... The battle would be three days, no longer. After three days, Alotabi thought, the earth would swallow up the opposing Saudi forces, they would open the gates, and Muslims from the world over would stream into the Grand Mosque and welcome the Mahdi and his apostles. The end times would be soon, and they would be in the vanguard in a grand struggle of good versus evil at the end of the world. Three days came and went, and the earth did not open up. God didn't speak to the men who had seized the holy site, and no miracles wiped away the Saudi forces outside the mosque. Juhayman al-Otebi was in a bad situation, with hostages and followers screaming at him about how God had not showed up. He had to assert his authority by force, killing anyone who opposed him. But it got worse. Muhammad Abdul al-Qahtani, the man who would be the Mahdi, killed himself. It seems that he realized he was not, in fact, a messiah or chosen one. He was just a man who'd helped forcibly capture thousands of people in a place of worship. I don't know what was going through his head when he died, but maybe he thought that after profaning a holy site, after contributing to the suffering of so many people, after doing something that was so transparently awful, that maybe suicide was the honorable thing to do. Maybe he fully realized how wrong he'd been, and, like Macbeth or Othello, chose suicide as kind of an honorable death. 
By the way, I reject the idea that killing yourself is actually honorable. But I wonder if this guy, this would-be Mahdi, thought differently. That's just speculation on my part, though. And it's kind of hard to have a messianic movement when your messiah is dead. Alotebi began to claim that, no, no, the Mahdi isn't dead, he's just hanging out in the basement. And people probably saw through that. And Alotebi had to threaten or kill those who challenged him. So imagine what that must have been like to the worshippers, those people on the Hajj, who, again, were united in this great group activity, and suddenly there's a crazy man who believes in the end of the world, who's refusing to surrender to the authorities outside, and he is running his own miniature totalitarian site inside what had previously been a very positive environment for these people. That must have been strange, and that must have been terrifying for the people who were held hostage. Meanwhile, outside, the Saudis enlisted the help of three French gendarmes, who were reputed to be some of the best special forces in the world. Now, I could only find one source on this next part. If this happened, I find it to be a fascinating detail. In his book, The Looming Tower, colon, Al-Qaeda and the Road to 9-11, Author Lawrence Wright claims that in order to enter Mecca, a city where only Muslims are allowed to go in, these gendarmes, they temporarily converted to Islam. I couldn't find any sources to confirm that, and a few sources actually contradicted it, but if it happened, it must have been very strange and awkward for all involved to have these, you know, French special forces guys who you really want to come in and do their thing, uh, but they're not Islamic, so they're not allowed in the city, so you're just going to go through a ceremony, which a lot of people probably realize was just going through the motions, and say, okay, it's fine, come on in, help us kill these guys. The French, the cleric who oversaw the ceremony, the observers, they must have all thought that that was extraordinarily weird. And again, I've only got one source on that, but I kind of want to believe that that actually happened because it makes the story so much stranger. And the solution that the gendarmes and the Saudi authorities ultimately used was ruthless and did involve the loss of civilian life. Um, again, picture the Grand Mosque like a stadium, uh, with an enclosed area around a wall and a large open area in the middle. And the terrorists and hostages, they were mostly near the walls, which were covered from any long-range weapons that the National Guard wanted to employ. So, so the National Guard and the gendarmes, they drilled deep holes in the walls of the mosque, inserted grenades into them so that they fell into the areas where people were undercover, and when the grenades exploded, that explosion forced terrorists and civilians alike out into the open, where the National Guard could pick them off at a distance. And this worked. Eventually, Alotebi and his followers retreated into a series of underground tunnels beneath the mosque, and the French and Saudis filled these tunnels in the basements with poison gas. Trapped in basements where it was impossible to breathe, the remaining militants surrendered. There had been over 300 of them at the start of the siege. When they were apprehended in the Grand Mosque gas-filled basement, only 63 were still alive. Also over a 100 civilians had died, and we don't know how many people were injured in all of this violence. The Saudi authorities, they had those 63 surviving terrorists 
transported to several different cities around Saudi Arabia, and each of them was, in turn, in front of a gigantic crowd of people, publicly beheaded. The seizure of the Grand Mosque. It did have an effect on Saudi Arabian culture and policy in the following years. And I don't think dramatic tragedies make societies more open or more liberal or more tolerant or understanding. Uh, think about the United States after 9-11 or Pearl Harbor. After those tragedies, we got things like the Patriot Act and we got Japanese internment. Uh, dramatic national tragedies, it seems, they make societies dig in their heels and become even more conservative and inflexible than they already are. And that's certainly the case here. After the seizure of the Grand Mosque, Saudi Arabia, they kind of acted like the U.S. did after 9-11. Uh, they didn't have a Patriot Act, they didn't go to war, but there was talk among the elites about how the siege was a punishment from God, about how it wouldn't have happened had the country not been so westernized or modernized, etc., etc. After the siege, places like movie theaters and record stores, they were closed down. Kids, they had to do more religious studies at school. Gender segregation became the norm, and photographs of women and images of women in newspapers and on television, those became illegal. Had he not been executed, Juhayman Alotebi would have probably approved of those changes. He didn't actually overthrow the Saudi monarchy or usher in the end times, but through violence, he did help make his country just a little bit more ossified, religious, conservative, and reactionary. I don't think that's as great a tragedy as the lives lost during those two weeks in 1979, but having a country dig in its heels like that and become just a tiny bit more like the terrorist who held it hostage for two weeks, that's a kind of tragedy all on its own. So a few things. Um, you might have seen in the feed earlier my announcement about starting a Patreon campaign. And again, like I mentioned there, I want to keep this podcast ad-free. No stamps.com, no Squarespace, nothing. None of that. I won't talk about it. Never. Uh, instead, uh, I want to work directly for you. So if you like the podcast, and I hope you do, please contribute, and you can contribute however much you want. So think about how much utility you get out of this podcast every month, and if it's five bucks of utility, give me five bucks a month. It's up to you. Go to uh, interestingtimespodcast.com, uh, click on Support IT on Patreon, and it'll have a link to our campaign, uh, so you can set up a recurring monthly payment to support the podcast on a regular basis. I appreciate that. Also, iTunes was not displaying some of our episodes correctly. Uh, so previously, only 10 episodes were displaying at a time. There was a problem with the RSS feed. We fixed it. All of the episodes are now downloadable. So if there are episodes you haven't listened to and you want to, they are available. Go get them. Uh, again, we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash interesting times with Joe Streckert. I tweet at at Joe Streckert. And, uh, Go on iTunes, give us a review, give us a rating, give us five stars, say nice things about us, and uh, thank you for listening. I'll see you guys next week.